Please pray with me. Lord, it is with gratitude that we continue in worship to you tonight. Uh, gratitude for the gift of worship, for the opportunity to sing praises and to pray. And Father, uh, for the, in gratitude for the gift of Sulmani and Lubeli to this church and beyond. In gratitude for the fact that we can gather as brothers and sisters in Christ. We can welcome visitors. And Father, we pray in gratitude for the fact that you speak livingly through your word. It's alive and piercing and cuts to the heart. And we pray, Father, that all of us will give attention to what you might say to us through your word. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I am going to be talking to, well, I guess I can just do it like this. I was going to get you guys to move over here, but anyway, there's no place. You can sit in somebody's lap, I guess, right? So Monty and Miriam and Lou Bailey and Bill, this is an exciting evening for you, and I know it feels like it's been a really long, slow time uh, getting here. It's about time kind of a thing, and in fact, it really has been a long time. You guys have been processed for a while. But it's been even longer than that, because your process for ordination tonight is a lifelong process. And it's been going on since long before you were even aware of it, and yet God has been at work in it, and God has brought you to this place. And I was thinking as we were praying for you uh, before the service about all the ingredients that have gone into your life, the, the wounds, the pains, the difficulties, the joys, uh, the relationships, the things that you've endured, been healed of, all the things that have happened in your life that are preparing you for further service to the people of God and to the world who needs to know Christ. And so I just want you to realize uh, that tonight is a gift to you because it is a culmination of much that God has done in your life. And I pray that you receive it with joy and gratitude the whole night. Just the whole night, okay? It's not just an exciting day for you, though. It's an exciting day for the Church of the Res and for our diocese and for the work that God is stirring up in our corner of the kingdom. And the reason that I would say that is this. Throughout the Diocese of Christ, our hope, the Lord is stirring up an awareness of the central importance of the vocation of deacon in the healthy life and ministry of the church. So Somani and Lou Bailey, you're both being ordained to the vocation or the calling of deacon. It's a place of influence and leadership and impact. But it's a different place than that of a presbyter or what we might call a priest or a bishop. And this particular place that you're going to occupy is a good and beautiful and beneficial place. And personally, as a bishop, I long for this place to be seized and honored and really promoted in our diocese because I believe it will bring health to the ministry and the calling of the whole church. And so I, I welcome you to this. And it's a growing movement in our church, and I'm really, really glad that you guys are joining in this process. And I want to tell you five things about the diaconal calling that I think make it particularly important for the life of the church and its ministry and mission in the world. First of all, it is first and foremost a calling to true Christian spirituality. And therefore, it defines all of our spiritual calling. Remember that by definition, a, a deacon is to occupy a position of leadership or influence in the church. But what is the primary source of your calling to this place and this position of influence? What is the kind of essence of the influence that you have? Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus were chosen as deacons, not because of their public speaking gifts, which they had, or their organizational skills to solve the problem of the neglected widows in Acts chapter 6, which is 
probably true. Are there accounting skills to handle the books? Because somebody probably sure had to do that, you know, to make sure everything was distributed. Or particular skills of any kind, or even their particular spiritual gifts. That's not why they were chosen. The text is very clear. Their skills were important, but that was not the basis. They were chosen because of their good reputation, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were filled with wisdom. In other words, these were people that had been raised up and emerged out of a community that already defined true exemplary leadership in terms of character, in terms of being like Jesus. Not in terms of accomplishments, not in terms of power, not in terms of the kinds of skills that often are raised up to the top of an organization, but because of character. And in that regard, they had a good reputation. They loved the Lord personally. They were passionate to see his fame spread. You can look at it because of what rolls out in their ministry, their public ministry. They depended upon God because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were faithful in their prayer life. Again, that shows up in their public ministry. They knew the scriptures. Again, evident in the preaching ministry of Stephen and of Philip that's going to come later on. They bowed the knee to the Lord in their lives because they were filled with the Lord. They weren't a phrase, faithful, godly, obedient men who pursued lives of holiness. And that kind of life is why I included this really weird, confusing scene in Exodus chapter 4, right? If you were listening to that, that's one of the, I mean, it's got to be one of the strangest passages in all of Scripture. It's one of those ones that's kind of like, are you sure you want to say thanks be to God after it's over, right? <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> I don't understand a lot about this passage, Okay. But let me just give you a, at least a couple of things that I think are important and why I, for whatever reason, thought I wanted to stick it in here, okay? Uh, in Exodus chapter 4, Moses reaches the culmination of a long training period in his life. In fact, it had been about 80 years now, you know, through different kinds of things that he had trained. And he went through the very, very difficult 40 years in the wilderness. And all that was given to him in that lifetime of preparation culminated in a call to return to Egypt and lead God's people to freedom in the promised land. He received that call at the burning bush, if you remember the story. So he made arrangements with his father-in-law, that's who he worked for, and he left to do the work of God in, Israel, in, in Egypt. And as he went, God continued to give him instructions about that process. But then he reaches this place, and they're staying at an inn, and it says God tried to kill him. Now, I'm not going to try to explain that to you, okay? But what I do know is this, that he was being stopped in his tracks because he had failed in one particular and important reason, uh, uh, issue of personal holiness and obedience. Moses was part of the people of Israel, and there was not a whole lot they knew at this time about what God expected of them, because they hadn't received any of the law, they hadn't been to Mount Sinai, but what they did know is this, that God had established a covenant with Abraham through which the families of the earth will be blessed. This was crucial. This was a watershed event in the history of the world, and Abraham was the father of the people of God, the chosen people of God, and who would bring blessing through to the entire world. There would be a peculiarity or a particularity about the blessing of knowing God that Abraham would know and embody and pass on to his, uh, his progeny and would spread out to the nation of Israel and would therefore be accessible to the, people of, to the people of the world. But there was a sign of this covenant. And this was really about the only thing Israel knew to do, the kind of law that they had received, and that is that circumcision 
was set apart as a sign of this world-blessing calling. But Moses hadn't thought that this final step of, of obedience mattered, and so he was motoring on into ministry, and he hadn't gotten around to it. He had been very proud to be a Hebrew. Remember, he stood up as a Hebrew and slew an Egyptian and got into all sorts of problems with that. So it wasn't that he had failed to own his Jewishness, but he neglected the only real marker given at this point in history that set these people apart as the people of God. So God stopped him in his tracks and said, your submission to me, your obedience to me, your holiness is, is life-changingly critical. And it may seem like a trivial issue, but our authority to serve often will turn at a key point in our life. I don't think this is the way we live at all time, but a key point in our life, for those of us called into leadership, our authority to serve will turn on simple issues of submission, obedience, and holiness that may look like no big deal. But we know the Spirit of God is saying, I have you a, a, a will for you at this point. And I'm calling you to obedience. And you can't take another step in service to me without clearing up this particular issue of full obedience. I think it's similar to Paul's statements in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he advises Timothy that there are many vessels in the household of God and some for honor and for some for dishonor. And he calls us as leaders, in particular all through the scripture, to give attention particular attention to the condition of our souls as we stand as examples and embodiments of true Christian spirituality. So brother, sister, be an example to us. Keep us all anchored in a life of godliness and true spirituality by your lives, your words, and your encouragement to help us become who we are supposed to be. The second statement of why this is such an important calling and event tonight is that the deacon's call is to humble service, and therefore it is the defining call of all Christian ministry and the ground to which we all return when we seek to understand what ministry is about. Stephen and Philip were highly gifted men, two of the seven men that were chosen to be deacons. They were public preachers, teachers, and evangelists, but their first job was waiting on tables literally what we might call menial service, which is from the French word that simply means hand and household. And we are called as to a lifelong process of being willing to do the small thing. Show me a deacon or a priest or a bishop who does not move first to clear the table or wash the dishes or sweep the floor or change the diapers or clean up the vomit and I'm seeing someone who is not fulfilling the essential call to Christian leadership. Eugene Peterson was one of the great and outstanding preachers, teachers, and leaders, and pastoral formers, people who formed pastors from the previous generation. He was a prolific writer and speaker. He was in much in demand. But he was also a pastor of a small church. And in one of his more candid moments that he actually is quoted, and I've heard the quote, Eugene Peterson commented that pastoral ministry was little more than shoveling sheep shit. Those are his words, not mine. I'm just quoting it. I mean, that's a quote, okay? I didn't say that. Eugene Peterson said it, okay? But the point, <laughs> he spent his whole life with a shovel in his hand because he was a pastor. 
Stephen and Philip apparently didn't balk at menial service. And in that regard, they embodied Jesus. I want you to listen to a passage in Luke chapter 22. It's in the upper room at the end of Jesus' life, right before he goes to Gethsemane. He's already washed the disciples' feet. He's already inaugurated the Lord's Supper. And when he washed the disciples' feet, do you remember what he said? I have done this to you that you might have an example. In other words, as I have loved you, so love one another. You call me teacher and rabbi, and so I am. But if I, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you should do this to each other. Well, just a couple of hours later, this is what we read. A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, to which of them was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called beneficiaries, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's Jesus. Were the disciples arguing about this because they were sheer idiots? What had he just done? What had he just told them? Were they suffering from group dementia? Well, were they arguing if, well, if washing feet is the call, I guess it's pretty significant that he washed my feet before he washed yours. My tendency is to think that they were just human. Normal human beings who learn life-changing lessons at 6.40 p.m. and by 9.16 p.m., they've forgotten them, especially after three cups of wine at Passover. Regardless, Jesus makes his point and a phrase that hopefully we have all memorized. And in fact, I encourage us all to let this one sink in. I am among you as one who serves. That's a startling statement. It cuts to the chase. I am among you as one who serves. By definition, servanthood is seen more in action than it is defined by words. So I pray, Lou Bailey and Sumani, that your lives speak a loud message. And because I know that's what you've already been doing, that's because, that's why you've been recognized, that's why you're here. I just simply say, keep it going. Keep it up. Keep it up. Third, the deacon's call, it's a call to humble service, it's a call to spirituality and holiness, but third, a deacon's call is a call to gifted service. It's humble service, but it's also gifted service. The work of the deacon is always rooted in this basis of menial service and servanthood, but it also expresses the particular gifts and ministries that he or she has been given for the work of Christ. Take, for example, Philip. He's one of the seven that's chosen in Acts 6. Well, in addition to serving food to widows and orphans within the church, he was a preacher, evangelist, and apostolic leader. He opened the door to the evangelization of the entire Samar all the Samaritan race. He was the agent who opened up the entire nation of Ethiopia to the gospel through witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch. He was given the ability to perform signs and wonders in support of the proclamation of Christ. And he must have been a fairly decent dad and a family discipler because he had four unmarried daughters who were all prophets in the apostolic era. Not a bad gig for a mere deacon, right? So this was a deacon whose ministry was defined by servanthood, who had enormous gifts of public ministry. And he was released and commissioned to do that public ministry. 
Paul speaks to the Roman church, to its ordained clergy as well as to its ordained laity, and he says to them, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In other words, get on with it, folks. You've been given something to do for the sake of the gospel, do it. Ephesians 2.10 is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It comes at the end of this magnificent declaration of the grace of God poured out in our lives. Two, two, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. You ought to read it if you haven't. It's just, it's ringing. It's just amazing about how we've been raised up from death with Christ, from, dead with Christ, from the dead with Christ. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We're objects of the love and mercy of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's just over and over and over and over again. You have been given the unmerited gift of forgiveness, the mercy of God's salvation. You are swimming in the grace of God. And then it turns around and it says, For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand that you should do them. And the reason I love it is because that word workmanship is a word that means literally handcrafted. Handcrafted. You're God's handiwork. So we can say that about any of us, but I'm saying it to you that you are handcrafted. You've been given particular gifts, particular skills, particular ministries that are designed by God, meticulously designed, so that through you the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ can be displayed and proclaimed and ministered in ways that nobody else can quite do it. So as you embody servanthood, Understand, at the same time, that you have a distinctive calling according to the gifts and ministries, and you are to be released and affirmed and to do those ministries. You will be told also that part of your official calling as a deacon is discipling and training the flock in catechism, and surely that helps any person in this church understand his or her vocation, his or her particular calling. Okay, so take this idea and transfer it behind you. Fourth, and I think this is really interesting because it distinguishes between diaconal ministry and any other kind of ministry that deacons are called, in terms of leadership, deacons are called to lead from within and among the flock in a very particular way. You'll be part of an ordained leadership group that consists of presbyters and bishops as well as deacons. The body of Christ is crying out for good and faithful leaders, but there are at least three different callings with three different emphases. The shepherds of the churches and the shepherds of the shepherds, the bishops, have a distinct ministry of, that, that makes them stand somewhat apart from the flock. A shepherd, by definition, has to be apart. His eye is on the horizon looking for danger. His eye is on the flock looking for trouble or for need. He is looking outside in order to keep the flock united together and moving together, thinking and assessing and considering where the flock needs to go for food and water and shelter and rest and safety. He's looking ahead as the road unfolds, leading the flock where it needs to go. Diagonal leadership is not outside the flock. It's from among the flock. It's within the flock. In some sheep herding cultures, there is the recognition of an alpha sheep. It can be male or female, but it's a sheep that is within the flock that catches the eye, the, the shepherd catches the eye of the alpha sheep. When the alpha sheep goes, the whole flock goes. By force of presence and example from within, brushing shoulders with everyone else, 
it moves the flock in the right direction, encouraging the flock to follow the voice of the shepherd from within the ranks. Now, both of you, Lou Bailey and Sumani, have described your desire, and I want the rest of you to hear this, from, to lead from among the people of God. I love that they said that to me. Lou Bailey, you want to be available to sit with people, to offer the gift of time and the ministry of chicken soup. Sumani, not so much. You admitted last night in a group that we were in that you don't like to cook at all, which makes it really, really nice that Miriam loves to cook. <laughs> She's a foodie. Still, you described your heart for ministry and the way you want to be alert for needs and to sense and discern where people need help and to make every effort to discern where to find the resources and gifts to match with the needs. Again, you, offer, you desire the, to offer the gift of time. And although you don't care to cook chicken soup, I think you can stir up a pretty good sermon from what I hear, okay? Be among the people. Know the people. Know their heart. Bring the heart of the people to the Lord. Represent the people. Understand them. You stand in a very unique place as somebody who's gifted for leadership from within. Finally, in what may sound like a contradiction to what I just said, the deacon's call is to stand with a foot in the church and a foot in the world, and therefore to define for the church how we stand in relationship to the world. We have certain details about the doctrinal service of only two men in the Bible, Stephen and Philip. They were deacons in the early church. I've said this many times, called to menial tasks, but both of them were gifted and passionate evangelists and street preachers. They left table service when it was completed and ran out to preach the gospel. I think it's a great image. They left table service when it was completed and ran out to preach the gospel to those who didn't know. Christian tradition suggests that Phoebe was a deacon. In Romans 16, she carried the letter of the, of the Romans from Paul to its destination, and she read it to the church as his missionary emissary. There's strong evidence that Epaphroditus was a deacon in Philippians, and he was also a pastor and a missionary. If the New Testament is inconclusive about what I'm saying, the tradition of the church is not. Deacons traditionally have maintained some form of mission in the world and helped the world to bridge from its home into the mission field. And primarily through evangelism, compassion, mercy ministries, and apostolic expansion into new areas. And deacons have historically been the people who've led the church to the poor, the needy, and the suffering. God has a bifocal vision of love. He loves the church, and he loves the world. He loves the church because it's his family, his sons and daughters, through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ's work is defined in Hebrews 2 as bringing many sons and daughters to glory. When we follow Christ in faith, we're adopted as children, beloved sons and daughters of God. St. John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. Love. But God loves the world, too. Those people who yet do not know him and are separated from him. And John 3.16 is the classic statement we all who are around the church know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God blesses and builds up the church 
so that the life that he gives the church can pass through the church to the people who do not yet have it. The church exists for the glory of God, for the transformation of Christians to become all that God created human beings to be in this life, and it exists for the sake of the world. We're not the end game, folks. It's not to us in full stop. The blessing of God and through the gospel is meant to pass through us to the world. And Sulmani and Lubeli, your calling is the gift of God for his people and the world to occupy the place that brings those two bifocals together, the church and the world within the love of God. Tonight's a happy night. I'm grateful for your lives, your calling, your ministry. Yours is a defining call for us in all the, these things that I've said. And Christian spirituality and holiness and servanthood. In using your gifts to the full extent God gives you the ability. In leading from among the flock by example. In relationships, in homes, on the street. Standing in the place between the church and the world to help us all remember that that's where we are as the church or to stand in the world. For the sake of the world. And I do pray that you will be shaped and changed and grounded by your calling. But I also pray that we will be shaped and changed and grounded by you. By how you live and work among us. To be like Jesus. I am among you as one who serves. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.